One of the most common things that even a person, if, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus. Um, that's cool. I'm, I'm glad you're here because even, um, even if you're, you're not really fully aware of who Jesus is, one of the most common things that people tend to know about Jesus is that he was believed to have been able to do miracles, but the other thing is he tends to teach in parables. And so in the same way that you know, Aesop does what? Aesop's what? Fables, right? There's a sense in which there's nobody more uh, famous in history for speaking in parables than Jesus. And so we have, over the last few weeks, kind of dug into the pictures that Jesus wants to paint for us of what His kingdom looks like and what the good news of what He's accomplishing on our behalf looks like and begins to uh, be applied in our own lives. And so as Jesus began to teach and, and unfold these mysteries of God's kingdom and, and mysteries of understanding things, He begins to reveal not only God's kingdom, but who He is and His place in God's kingdom. That God is doing something that's bringing about a kingdom so that we can ask, like, what would it be like if Jesus really were in charge of our lives? And the example I, I gave you, of, I've given, tried to give you because this is the season for this, but even this month of November, a lot of politicians took out a lot of um, newspaper and, and radio and television ads to tell you what it would be like if they were in charge, right? Elect me, because if I'm in charge, this is what it would look like. And Jesus comes along and says, look, if, if, my, if my Father's kingdom is coming into reality and I'm given authority over that kingdom, this is what it begins to look like. And you and I get to ask questions through these parables is, is this really what it looks like in my life? Is this the way I understand Jesus? And if Jesus were the one making all the decisions for me today, would it be different than if I were making all those decisions? And when you begin to ask that question, you begin to start to see things as Jesus wants to uncover for us. So last week, we kind of wrapped up our, our sprint through Matthew chapter 13, some parables about farmers Right? Because God's kingdom is radically different than worldly kingdoms. Instead of, saying, instead of Jesus standing up and saying, hey, my kingdom is like every other kingdom. We've got, we, got, we have soldiers, we have armies, we have chariots, and we have lots of political power, and we come in violently, we take what we want, and then we get to be king. Instead of illustrating his kingdom that way, he goes, hey, I'm going to be king. And instead of being more like an emperor, he says, it's kind of like a farmer. My kingdom is kind of like when a farmer generously throws seed knowing that a lot of it will not pan out and bear fruit. Knowing that, and he still generously and lovingly invests and gives, lays down his own life. And then we saw that in the midst of this, there's also apparently an adversarial relationship that, that exists between God's kingdom and the kingdom that, that the evil wants to supplant the good kingdom with. And Jesus paints another picture of a farmer who throws out seed and then his enemy comes and plants weeds that appear to look exactly like the good seed until finally they're harvested and their fruit is what determines or reveals their true identity. And so we see that God's kingdom is not like an earthly kingdom. Our job as members of God's kingdom is not to root out all the evil and to remove all the evil people, right? We're, our job is not to take up arms and kill everything that's evil. And the reason that's not our job is because if we took that seriously, we would start to kill ourselves. Because honestly, that evil that exists in the world exists in our own heart. But thanks be to God, Jesus didn't send us on a mission to destroy evil, thereby destroying one another. Instead, Jesus, instead of trying to kill the enemy, Jesus died for you and me while we were the enemy. So God's kingdom is radically different. It's radically different than we understand kingdoms to be. And so he wants to tell us more about what he is doing. And we see this in Luke chapter 15. A pictures, uh, three separate pictures of, of different things that were lost. 
And so I want to ask you before we begin to dig into this, have you ever lost anything? Have you ever lost anything? And to me, I guess there's kind of a couple categories. Um, There's like, have you lost anything that you always lose? And then have you lost anything that's really valuable? Right? And so for me, I am constantly in a process of just losing and finding my keys, cell phone, and wallet. Okay? And even though I'm telling you this right now, I know it. I know I need to keep up with my wallet, cell phone, and keys. In fact, that's, how, that's my checklist. Wallet, cell phone, keys, wallet, cell phone, keys, wallet, cell phone, keys. Yeah, I'm good. And even though I'm telling you this, sometime this week, I will put, I'll put my wallet someplace, and it will be, I'll, I'll have to go find it. All right? Now, I'm, I don't lose it. I don't, like, you know, completely lose it. But I'm just regularly putting it down in places that I should not. Right? Where's, where are my keys? What? And then you go, pick, why, are my key, why are my keys there? Why, why would I even put that there? That's not where they belong. And so I'm regularly losing, I'm constantly ripping things up to find my wallet, cell phone, and keys. But then there's like this other one, like devastating loss, right? Have you ever lost anything that was really valuable? Maybe it was stolen. Um, I don't know if that really qualifies, but I've lost things that were valuable. Um, I remember I, um, I lost about 60 bucks. I was in a restaurant, and for some reason, again, I don't know why I was doing this, but I put the cash in my pocket in a pair of, in a pair of shorts that don't hold things very well, and the next morning I realized that I lost 60 bucks. That's a big deal for me. That's a lot of money. Had my wallet, had my cell phone, had the keys, but why did I take my cash out of my wallet, put it in my pocket? Don't know. Now it's gone. It seems like not a big deal, but man, it haunts me. Every time, I mean, I, 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 and I refuse to put things in my, in my pockets for that very reason. Don't know where it went. Lost an iPod once. Back when iPods were like a big deal, like before everyone had iPods, only like, you know, people who had generous relatives who gave them iPods, right? I had an iPod, and it was taken out of my own car and is now gone. It's gone. Now, here's the irony. Some punk kid stole it out of my car, all right? And it was full of sermon audio because <laughs> I was listening to podcasts and, and sermon audio, right? I downloaded all these preachers preaching. So my only hope is that some punk kid pulled it out right, you know, and as many plugged it in, he was like, oh, I love Jesus. And now, and now I gave that, and I didn't just lose that iPod, but maybe it was an investment in the kingdom. I doubt that's, I doubt that's what happened. Um, but I remember it, man. And now so much so that every Apple device I own, I can show this to you. You can't see it from where you're sitting, sitting but um, there's engraving possibly on um on your ipod or iphone if you want to and this one says just like all my other apple devices it says this is not your ipad <laughs> and if you plug it into your into if you plug it into my computer or anyone's computer this says this is not your iphone or this is not your ipod because i know if i lose it again somebody is gonna ha ha and they go oh at least maybe they'll go you know what this is not my ipad <laughs> and, and i've lost some things i mean we could keep going um i have a wife that likes to clean things loves to clean things. And if it doesn't look like it's valuable to her, it's gone, man. And I have jumped in a dumpster a few times, um, first to get an engagement ring, that's an awesome story, um, and to get a wallet. Why? Because they were where they shouldn't have been and got thrown away, because I'm I'm constantly losing things. And so these parables are a story about what it means to lose things, and not just what it means to lose things, but the emotions and, and the kinds of feelings and instincts you have when you're looking for that thing that is lost. And those kinds of instincts that you and I have when we lose things are meant to point us to a valuable trait that our God and loving Father has. 
So let's read beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus as he paints a picture of what it looks like in his kingdom. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he, that is Jesus, told them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I believe this is God's Word and it can speak to us. This might especially apply for some of you who have purses, um, maybe if you carry things in bags. But there's kind of a picture in which if you know where you, where you think you know where something is that you have lost and you begin to look for it, you start to rip things up and throw things all around to get to the thing you lost. Especially if it might be in a place surrounded by other things that are tidily or, or neatly organized. And if you're like me, the thing you need, if it's behind all the things, again, because I like to stack things in a certain way, my wife likes to put all the things I need behind all the things that she needs. And so I tend to go, where's that thing? I don't know where it is. It's about, ah, got it. And I tend to just destroy everything in my path on the way to getting to the thing I need and the thing I'm looking for and make a mess. But I have the thing I was looking for. And there's this picture of what it looks like for a person to have lost valuable property, that is, a sheep. And there's a picture of what it looks like for a person to have lost something of great value amidst the things that they already have. And the picture that's meant to be painted for you and me is what God is like. What God is like when God looks at you and me. And we see this played out in Jesus' own life. Jesus, on a regular basis, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is always described as a person who seems to be hanging out with lots of sinners. right? And, and even right at the beginning, look, the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near him. And so there seems to be these kind of classifications of sinners, and Jesus is constantly being accused of hanging out with them. Right? This, this, this is the, these are the kind of people that Jesus constantly is hanging out with. And the religious people tend to see this and criticize it. So much so that you see this in, in, in other texts, in other different places. Rabbinical texts even point to how terrible it is to be around such a person. So like the first character that shows up in Luke chapter 15 is a tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean much for us. Um, I, I don't know how, many, how much you know, taxes you pay, um, but ours is typically like e-filed, right? Um, if there was a dude that actually came to your house from the IRS uh, and made you pay the taxes every year, this might mean more. 
or if you've ever been audited, this really hits close to home. Uh, but we kind of have an impersonal relationship with taxes. I don't know if you like taxes. I don't. But if there was like a personification of taxes, that's what a tax collector is. So much so that if we were to be, let's say, invaded by someone else, if some other country took over the United States, and when they did, they took over the church, and in order to fund their operation of taking over the United States and taking over all the Christian churches, they asked some of us to begin to collect taxes to fund their operation. This is the kind of person that is being described here. Like if they took over the church, that's one thing. But what if one of us like volunteered to help them? What if one of us volunteered like, hey, I know they took over everything we hold dear, but I'm going to help them pay for their little endeavor um, and I'm going to take your money to do it. This is the kind of turncoat. This is the kind of, um, this is the kind of traitor that is meant to be thought of here. So much so that the rabbinical texts later say that this kind of sinner is, is in a class of themselves. They're lumped in with prostitutes, gamblers, thieves, and all sorts of dishonest people. People who live lawless, promiscuous lives. These terms are constantly thrown in in rabbinical texts. So in the, in the centuries before and after the time of Jesus, Jewish scholars, these rabbis would write, and, and there's, there's a couple of texts. Let me give you a couple of them. One of them says that as one robber disgraces his whole family, so one publican, that is a tax collector, disgraces his family. Promises were not meant to be kept with murderers, thieves, or tax collectors, right? So this is something that goes on right now, and I'm going to just kind of point it out, but in our political sphere right now, the political uh, environment, this is neither Republican nor or, or Democratic to say that right now there's a, a thing where if you can convince the other people that the other side is evil, you can justify all sorts of things, right? I mean, it's one thing if like you disagree with me, but on the other hand, what we see is like, no, they're evil. And constantly people are like, no, they're evil. And, and here's the problem when you start to lump people into the scale of evil. It starts to justify anything. Because if I punch you in the face, that's a bad thing, right? But what if you're evil? <laughs> right? Now, now I'm, I'm a hero. <laughs> I mean, and no one goes, why don't you punch him in the face? You just go, I'm, I'm, I'm a hero. I saved the day. I punched the, the evil one in the face. And, and listen to the way this, this is a religious group of people. The rabbis said that it, it would be evil to be a murderer, thief, or publican, but it would also, it says that normally while lying, we all know, and the Jews would all agree, one of the big ten, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou, thou shalt not lie. But what does it say here, one of the rabbinical texts? Promises are never meant to be kept with murderers, thieves, and publicans, that is, tax collectors. Do, do, you, do you hear that? Like, they're, they're so evil that you don't even have... You, man, you can lie, cheat, and steal from them because they're already evil. Your behavior is now off the table. Another text says this, that a synagogue alms box and a temple corbin, these are ways that the synagogue received gifts and, and commitments financially from people, must not receive the alms of a publican. <laughs> the tax collectors were so bad that the church wouldn't even take their money, right? So bad. I mean, come on. Who, who is so bad that we wouldn't take their money, right? We, this is, we don't have this philosophy, right? We don't, we don't have this thought. What church do you know? Like, no, we can't take your money. Yeah, right. It was not lawful to use riches received from tax collectors as gotten by rapine. Now, this is a word that we don't use much, but it simply means like the violent seizure or plunder. So it's using, it's using language of piracy. The rabbis lumped the, the tax collectors in with pirates. I love that. It makes me kind of like this. Jesus hangs with pirates. Woo! 
right? So if it's gotten by piracy or plunder, they're not to be received, nor could they judge or give testimony in a court. So a tax collector, not only are you you're allowed to cheat them, they're so bad, they, they cheat people so badly you can do whatever they want and you don't accept their money. Not only that, but if, if you're in, in court and, and, and you're in a court in Israel, you can't call in a tax collector to defend you because no one listens to them or believes what they say. So these are the worst of the worst. These are the worst of the worst. And Jesus, on a regular basis, hangs out with them. So much so, it says in verse 1 that those sinners, those tax collectors, it wasn't only that Jesus was going to see them, it says that they were all drawing near to him. The worst of the worst. Something about this Jesus made the worst of the worst who were cast out from everything, who had no sense of community, and yet they found some sense of belonging when they were around this dude, Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, now this, is, this is not uncommon, okay? Um, and even people who are not Christians follow this, okay? So if you have a felony, nine times out of ten, the terms of your felony are that you're not allowed to hang out with other felons. Because we even believe this. You're kind of guilty by association. Um, you, you can't hang out with those people. You can't associate because they assume if you're in that person's company, something corrupting is going on. So even, even law enforcement agrees with this. Like you can't, you can't do that. You have to be, there are terms. Once you are in a certain place, you can't hang out with them. In fact, if you get in trouble, one of the first things they will look into is your known associations. And it is a huge strike against you if it just so happens that all your friends are criminals. This is how good lawyer works. We're not talking about Christians here. We're just talking about the way that we tend to see things and the way we tend to evaluate people based on their associations. Just the way we kind of see things. I mean, maybe the best way to see is, what, what if like Billy Graham, I heard one person put it this way, like what if, what if Billy Graham were hanging out with like Lady Gaga like every week, like just hanging out? Hanging out with, don't get me wrong, I mean, Lady Gaga needs Jesus, right? We, want, we, want, we, want, we would love her and want her to hear this good news that God gives us hope. But like, what if, you know, what if, what if Lady Gaga and, I don't know, Sir Mix-a-Lot back in his hip-hop gangster days uh, was hanging around with Billy Graham, right? You'd be like, what? No, what if, what if people who, who are known to associate with criminal behavior, evil behaviors, destructive behavior, was hanging around with, say, like Billy Graham on a regular basis? What would be your first thought? A person who is, you know, we see this. What if the Pope were like best friends with someone like Al Capone? Right? What if the Pope was best friends, let's say for a, a modern day, like Charles Manson? You'd start to see, like, I mean, this doesn't add up. Something's going wrong. And the reason is because in our own minds, we have our own set list of expectations of who we associate with, and who tends to follow. These are the kind of people that hang out with these kind of people. These are not the kind of people that hang out with this kind of people. People who look, talk, and act this way don't hang out with people who look, talk, and act this way. And that's kind of our expectation. And Jesus does not do that at all. The attitude of Jesus toward these tax collectors and these sinners was in stark contrast 
to those who were religious, these rabbis who believed that you could do anything you wanted because those people were evil. And along comes Jesus, instead of cheating them, he listens to them. Instead of swindling them, treating them like pirates and protecting himself from them, he becomes extremely vulnerable in front of them. It's because Jesus is different. And to paint this picture, he tells us a story of what it looks like when a man, so here we have a man who has a hundred sheep. So this is probably not, um, you know, this is not a rich, you know, farmer, rancher, um, herdsman. This is not a, he's probably not the owner of these sheep. He's probably just the caretaker. But the picture of is a guy who has about a hundred sheep. So it's not small, but it's not massive either. A hundred sheep. And in this flock of 100 sheep, one of them wanders away. So one of the things we always ask when we're digging through the parables, who's God in this parable? Shout it out. Who's God in this parable? Shepherd, right? Um, And this is easier because Jesus on multiple different occasions, he identifies himself as a shepherd. This this one's easier. and, And so it's easier to kind of see Jesus in this. But this shepherd loses a sheep. And when he loses the one sheep, he abandons and leaves the 99 for themselves to find the lost. In the same way that you would kind of leave whatever you're doing to go find the thing that you lost, Jesus paints a picture of our God who is willing to leave the 99 orderly and in this case righteous persons to find the person in need of repentance. This is not uncommon. In Luke chapter 18, two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the religious elite, the highly religious, and one is, and Luke tells us again, a tax collector, right? He's all that pirate, criminal, whatever you think, thief and robber. One is a Pharisee, the highest religious standing. One is a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed to God, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but instead beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the picture Jesus paints, that those who are humble are the ones that God tends to gravitate toward in some mysterious way. Later we see the Pharisees who were lovers of money, Jesus tells us, and Luke wants us to know, heard all these things as Jesus was speaking, and then they began to ridicule Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart, for what is exalted among men is actually an abomination in the sight of God. And so we have this picture of 99 righteous people, and then we have this one. And so we know that Jesus, God seems to be in this parable, the shepherd, and if you haven't figured it out, that that means that you and I, where we fit in, is somewhere in this flock of sheep. And that's to imply a lot. Um, so are, are, would you say that a sheep is like a smart animal or a dumb animal? Right? Um, like a highly valuable, highly sought after, or, yeah, yeah, weak, worthless, right? Um, I heard one person put it this way. Like if someone, you know, if someone was like, 
called you on the phone tomorrow and they're like, okay, there was a truck of a hundred bears driving through your neighborhood and we're missing one of them in your neighborhood. Like, what would you do, right? You'd be like, oh, I mean, yeah, some, I mean, you'd curl up in the basement, right? Or grab a gun or something, right? But, but if someone was like, hey, we lost a sheep in your neighborhood, you know, I mean, what, you'd probably like grab your kids. Oh, let's go, you know, that's why sheep, sheep are in petting zoos, right? Lions and tigers not in petting zoos, <laughs> right? You know, no one, you know, you take a shark tooth and you make a necklace out of it because, right? You don't, you don't take sheep and, you know, if anything, you pay a lot of money for it and, and you call it something like cashmere, right? You know what I'm saying? This is sheep. They have a value of the system. So even, even for God to, to, to have given us this insight, like for Jesus to imply that you and I are sheep, that's not an exalting thing. Instead, it's quite a humbling thing, isn't it? That if Jesus is the good shepherd and we are sheep, there's, there's a sense of identity in which we begin to realize. And that's why Jesus wants to tell us that, that kind of humility, that kind of understanding that we are like sheep before our good shepherd. We're not like you know, ravenous wolves. That's also an illusion that's later in the scripture. But for this particular purpose, we're like sheep. It's not a compliment. In fact, it's a humbling thing. Isaiah 53 predicts Jesus coming and says that all we are like sheep and we have gone astray. We have turned each and every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, that is the one who has prophesied, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, for I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But, and this is, this is Jesus' word to so you and me, the sheep, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. this picture of a defenseless and humble sheep in the hands of a good shepherd meant to show you and I the, the way we ought to understand what it looks like when we know who God is. The sheep, it wanders off. According to Isaiah, that's, that's just following suit. That's what happens. People wander off. And what does the shepherd do when the shepherd gets there? I, I love this. Read verse 5 with me if you want. When he found it, he takes the sheep, picks it up, places on his shoulders, and then he says he rejoices. And then when he gets back, it says he calls others around him to rejoice. So hear the point of this story. When we repent, God rejoices. When we repent, God rejoices. This is important because some of you think right now, even in your own, in your own, in your own mind, your instinct is to think that when God gets a hold of you, he's going to be really mad. Like when God figures out all that's going on, God's going to be really mad. He's going to be really disappointed. And God's going to tell you, I told you so. You've been doing all that stuff I told you not to do. And some of you think that God might exist, but he's actually out to get you. And as soon as you come face to face with him, he's going to have some things to deal with with you. That's not the picture Jesus paints, is it? 
Our God, when he finds the wandering lost one, instead of scolding and saying, I told you so, and saying, don't do that again, he picks the sheep up, lays it on his shoulders, and carries them all the way back to the flock and rejoices. Because when we turn and when we repent, God rejoices. There's also a picture of what it looks like when Jesus finds us. Man, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is way awesome. Jesus grabs this sheep, and instead of guiding it back, Jesus doesn't want to put this sheep's wandering nature and his life at risk anymore. And so to make sure that this sheep won't wander off again, to take the risk away, he takes this sheep, places it on his own back, and carries it all the way back to the flock. It's this beautiful picture that even though this sheep and its own instinct is to wander away from the shepherd, even though this sheep's key instinct is to go off and to do its own thing, this Jesus who is awesome takes this sheep, carries it on his shoulders all the way back to where he belongs. And in the same way that the good shepherd takes the sheep and carries the sheep all the way back to where he belongs, we believe that our good shepherd, that is Jesus, took the entire weight of every failure in the world carried it on his shoulder and walked up a hill called Golgotha his wandering sheep back to God. This is a good shepherd, man. This is the good shepherd. And when he finds those of us who wander off, he he doesn't say, hey, hey, you you need to clean up your act. You need to get back with the rest of these people. Instead he says, I got you. And he rejoices that he's found us and carries them back. What an amazing picture of our God. And it gets bigger. Luke, like he always does, tends to include more women in his stories than anyone else. This is awesome. Luke, is, Luke has this really cool picture, especially of, of what women look like in God's kingdom. It's, it's really cool, so he, he wanted to make sure he gives us another picture. It says, includes the story Jesus told about a woman who having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. She finds it. She turns everything upside down. I mean, she doesn't have a house as big as you and I would have, right? She probably has a dimly hit, dimly lit, kind of small, let's call it a one-car garage-sized house, right? Enough for you know, preparation and eating of food, enough space for maybe a place to sleep, maybe enough space for whatever work that needs to be done. Certainly not like a full bedroom set like you and I probably have, right? But this woman in her small house It's dimly lit, doesn't have electricity. That seems like an obvious thing to point out, but we want to know here that she's in a dimly lit, small little hut of a house, and when she loses this coin, she turns everything upside down to find it. This coin is probably equivalent to what we would call like a day's wage, right? And so that's that's going to be difficult because we're all across the map. Let's just call it a $100 bill. Um, I would love to like illustrate this with a $100 bill, um, but I don't have one in my wallet. Right? And, and this might even begin to help illustrate this point. It, it, there's some value here. Um, in fact, so much, I, I heard one guy, and I've never done it because I don't have the guts to do it, but there's a buddy of mine who is a, a long-haul trucker, and he always told me, because I was like, man, how do you stay awake when you're driving overnight? And he said there's an old trucker's trick, and he said if you want to, and he's like, you really can't stay awake, roll down the window and hold a $100 bill out the window. Right? You will not, you will not let go. You will not fall asleep. Now, again, I'm just going to assume he's right. I've, I've never done that. Again, I, I just, $100 is a little too, too, little too valuable for me. I'd rather just pull over and take a nap. Get what I'm saying? But 
that if his analogy is true and, and this really has value, then, then we begin to see, like, I, I don't know, even, you know, even Jay-Z would stop to pick up a $100 bill, right? Even, even, even Bill Gates would like stop to pick up a $100 bill, even more so than we would, right? A $100 bill has value. It has real value. And for this woman to have lost something equivalent to a day's worth of wages, it's a big deal. It has value. And instead of moving on and going, ah, oops, I guess, guess I'll never see that again, what does this woman tell us about God? turns everything upside down because that thing has value. She's not content. She will not stop until she can rejoice with everyone else that she has found the thing that she had lost. Just so, verse 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our God is a good shepherd knowing that we don't have the ability in our inherently lost sensibilities to find our way back to where we belong, sends the shepherd out to grab this sheep, carry him all the way back to where he belongs. But also, the second picture seems to be of a God who is utterly relentless and seeking out his people. So here's the way I'll wrap up with a couple of thoughts. Um, if we're the people in this story, that the way we have to kind of, at least in a personal way, apply this to our own lives is to ask which one we are. Do you find yourself identifying more with the people who are where they belong? They stay with the flock, right? If you're the kind of person who, um, do you drive across the middle of the parking lot to get your spot or do you drive along the lanes, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Which one are you? You find yourself more likely to, to follow the rules and, and to do what is right. If maybe you haven't been in much trouble, and so this is you. Maybe you're the people who, one of the people in this particular parable that doesn't get lost, doesn't wander off, and you find yourself thinking, this is who I am. I'm, I'm not like a lost person. Maybe if you would say to yourself, like, my testimony, if you're a Christian, you're like, my story isn't a radical one. There's no, like, death, blood, you know, law breaking. There's no, there's no cool stuff happening you'd find yourself maybe identifying more with the flock. I want to caution you. I want to caution you. This especially shows up next week in the parable of the lost son. But I want to caution you. Our God, in some mysterious way, does not rejoice. He does not rejoice in your belief and your ability to follow the rules and be where you think you belong. Our God rejoices with those of us who realize we are unable to, to keep the rules, and we turn needingly to him. So here, here's maybe a litmus test. Do you find yourself really prone and really gifted at finding the flaws in others? Do you find yourself with an uncanny ability to point out the flaws in others? Do you find yourself being really critical or, or really like the minute you see, like even now, you, you're, I'm annoying you. There's something about me now is really on your nerves. Stop nodding. This is, this is, even sarcastically, sarcastic. Yeah, you don't mean that. Right? Even now, you're like, I find the flaws. That, did you hear that? He, he just made up a word. That's not even in English language, right? Or that was improper um, grammar. I, even now, if you find yourself really prone to point out the flaws in others, I want to warn you, be careful 
Because if you find yourself really good at pointing out the flaws in others, you are probably really, really bad at being aware of the flaws that you yourself have. If you find yourself being really gifted, really gifted at identifying the things in other people that are annoying to you, right? If you can look around this room and see all the things that annoy you about these people, I'm going to warn you, you're probably terrible. You're probably completely unaware and unapologetic for all the ways in which you annoy everyone else. If you find yourself thinking, man, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really good. If, you've, if you're really good at pointing out the ways in which people let you down and don't meet your expectations, you're probably completely unaware of the ways in which you're letting everyone else down. You're really gifted at pointing out the flaws in others. I, I promise you, Jesus tells us that you're probably missing something greater and even more painful in your own life. Why would I point you to that? Because God doesn't rejoice over the victories that we pat ourselves on the back for. God rejoices over those who are humble and turn to Him, needing Him to carry them back to the flock. Our God doesn't rejoice in all the ways in which you're so good at pointing out everyone else's flaws. Our God rejoices when you look in the mirror and see your own. Our God doesn't exalt all the people who are self-appointed experts over every group they're a part of. Our God rejoices in the person who can't even look at him and says, I'm a sinner. Our God doesn't justify the person who follows all the rules and pats themselves on the back for it. Our God justifies the one who is willing to humble themselves lay themselves down and throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus. He rejoices. Our God rejoices. Both of these stories in the same way. God rejoices when he finds the thing that's lost. When, when people see that they are broken and, and they identify more with the wandering sheep or they identify more with a lost coin, that's when our God gets excited. I mean, this gets scarier. We don't want to be anthropomorphic. We don't want to throw traits of humanity onto God. But there seems to be a picture. God tells us here through the words of Jesus and, and the Gospel of Luke that wants us to know something about the traits and attributes of God. And our God rejoices. Our God rejoices not in the people who think they've got it all figured out, but our God rejoices when we realize that we do not. Real transformation comes from knowing the good news that our God is a good shepherd who carries us back to where we belong. Real transformation from knowing that good news. It doesn't come from measuring yourself with other people. It comes from stacking yourself up against the holiness of a loving and perfect God. Here's what I know about myself. I can always find a group of people that I think I'm better than, right? You can, I mean, it's not hard. If you want to surround yourself with people who you know, and I am smarter and better than these people, that's easy. People are easy to find. But when I start to compare myself with this perfect Son of God, now it's not so pretty. I feel less like a sheep that is right where he belongs, and I feel more like a wanderer in need the good shepherd to track me down and carry me back. The nature of the good news and the way that it transforms us comes not from believing that we have it all figured out, but it comes from admitting that we do not. We don't find God by our own ability or by our own 
ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't find God. In these pictures, God finds us. The good shepherd seeks us out. The woman who loses a valuable coin seeks it out to bring it back. What an amazingly good thing to hear. Our God is after people. God wants people back into his family. So much so that Jesus took the weight of this lost, wandering sheep and carried it all the way back up the hill to God. So what do we do? Can't find God. God has to find us. What do we do? The last phrase in each of these is that we repent. That is, we turn away. We recognize that we cannot save ourselves and we say, Jesus, please come pick me up. It's that simple. You find yourself identifying more with someone who's wandered off and you don't fit in. There's good news, man. Our Jesus, he says, I'm, I'm right here. I'm chasing you down. All you got to say is, please pick me up. Just say, please pick me up. And our God is faithful. And he will grab you, he will pick you up, and he will carry you all the way back to where you belong. So here are the implications for you and I. I want to kind of wrap up with them. If God rejoices over repentance and God rejoices over us admitting and confessing our own failures before him and compared to him, then that ought to be a breath of fresh air, a load off of your shoulders concerning your own flaws and failures. Like this, this enables you and I to stop pretending and stop acting like we've got it all together. This enables you and I to take off the mask and to quit faking it. Why? God does not rejoice in the mask. God rejoices when we take it off and confess who we really are. And our God does not um, you know, belittle or, or demean us when we come to the realization that he's seen all along that we are imperfect and we do not belong in his presence. Instead, he exalts us when we realize the truth and the fact that we are failures. We've wandered away. This is hard to, like, you ought to be able to take a load off. This is good news for you. You don't have to cover your flaws anymore. In fact, to cover your flaws is, is probably puts you in the category more like the sheep that think they've got it all figured out because they're all huddled together. Instead, you get to just let it go. Here's what it also means. You can be open to constructive criticism. You can be open to it. Here's, guess what? I've got flaws, a lot of them. And they're big. And if I truly believe that Jesus, the good shepherd, is good and he's going to restore me and draw me back and it's not by my own ability to clean myself up, then I can stand up here in front of you and confess in all the ways that I am flawed, broken, and sinful. And even now, even I say that, I'm like, I, 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 it's like, oh, no, you're going to think I'm a failure. Ah, you can feel that creeping in. But there's an amazing breath of fresh air when you come to the realization that our God comes not to call the righteous, according to Mark chapter 2, but instead to call the sinners. Luke chapter 5, that Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous back to me, but instead sinners to repentance. John chapter 12, he says that while you have the light, believe in the light in order that you might become sons of light. It says in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Simply believe in God and believe also in me. Our God rejoices. He doesn't gloat. So do you find yourself immediately being defensive? Do you find yourself immediately jumping to uh, the instinct to criticize and to point out people's flaws? 
be careful. Just be careful. That instinct that is in you and is in me works against God's will for your life and mine. And we begin become completely free when we realize that our God is not here to rub our noses and our own failures, but instead He's here to pick us up and carry us back to where we belong. And all we have to say is openly declare, I am lost. I need the Good Shepherd to carry me. I am lost. I need this woman to dig me out and find me. And then I can welcome. You see my flaws? You criticize? Well, every criticism is true at some point, right? It's on some level. And I can welcome it. I can welcome it because I'm a lost sheep. And when you say, Jonathan, this is broken, I can go, I know. I need Jesus to carry me back. So if you find yourself in a place where, man, you're highly critical or it's easy to find flaws in people and you're slow to admit those in your own heart, here's a good news for you. It's a breath of fresh air. You can take off the mask and unhinge the, unhitch the load that you're carrying. Jesus wants to pick you up, carry you back. Flaws and all. There's also good news. If there's any one of you, find yourself thinking, Jonathan, all that stuff you're talking about, Jesus being so good, that's great and all, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I have incredibly good news for you. You're right. I don't. But the good shepherd, the one who's chasing you down, the woman, the woman who, who has lost that thing of great value, looking for you. The good shepherd is seeking you. And if you find yourself thinking, what I have done is too great, I want to tell you some incredibly good news. It is not greater than this great thing that the good shepherd has done for you and me. And he boldly chases you and I as far as we can run so that he might pick us up and carry us back. Think you've run too far? Jesus tells us a story so that you might believe otherwise. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you that uh, you are actively seeking out those of us who are wandering away. Um, even now, as our own hearts begin to wander against you, away from you, um, you're not unaware. There's no secrets uh, in your eyes. But instead, you see it, you know it, and you desperately want to, to draw us back to yourself. So if there's some in this room now, um, maybe they wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus. Maybe they, they wouldn't say with any confidence that they believe that this is true. And I'm, I'm so grateful they're here. Thank you, God, for, for bringing me. Maybe this morning is just one more thing in a long list of things that you've been doing to chase them down like a good shepherd. Um, and God, if this good news makes us uncomfortable, if it turns us upside down and makes us kind of queasy and as we begin to realize that we are flawed and and we need the Good Shepherd to find us. Maybe, maybe this be one more thing that you turn upside down, just like this woman, in order to find us finally. Uh, help us to begin to see that there is greater joy and rejoicing amongst one another, and certainly even in the presence of God when we repent, then there is shame for when we confess sin. Uh, so even now, we're, we're trying to think of all the ways in which we are ashamed of what we've done. Help us to really see that there's a greater rejoicing in repentance than there is in hiding. Uh, there's a greater joy in, 
And knowing that we are loved and accepted and made right before a loving God uh, than there is in just hiding and pretending like it doesn't exist. Um, now, if there's, if, man, if there's secret sin, if there's sin in us that needs to come out, um, I confess, God, help me to see that it, uh, it would be better to be in, in the fold of God right back where we belong, carried there by Jesus, than it would be to pretend like it doesn't exist. Help us to see that the shame that would come from from confessing sin is small. It's meaningless compared to the joy that comes from being back in the fold of the Good Shepherd. If there are those of us, maybe we, we find ourselves looking at lost and, and people wandering and we think that they're somehow beneath us or <laughs> God, somehow we're not wandering any worse or any better than them. Help us to see this example of Jesus. And Jesus, he loved the sinner. He loved the self-righteous sinner. He loved the, the sinner in self-denial. He loved the sinner who was swamped in sin. He loved them all. He ate with all of them. Help us to see that our God loves sinners and God, you rejoice over them. Let us find the joy in in confessing that. Forgive us for the places where we tend to look at other people thinking that what they're carrying is somehow worse than what we're carrying. What they've done is somehow worse than what we've done. Um, Help us to, to remove that plank from our own eye and see how good you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.